You're listening to the inaugural episode of the So What Podcast. And so the purpose of creeds and confessions is, is to bring good theology and make it conscious to our minds so that we can realize what we do believe. And, and the danger is we fall into this individualism where it's just the Bible and me, and, and then we neglect this heritage that we have, this wisdom accumulated from the past that can help us to be more robustly biblical and more robustly Christian. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Dave Kakish, Miguel Echeverria, and Brad Mills. And for our very first episode, we are honored to be joined by Dr. Greg Allison. Dr. Allison received his PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and is currently professor of Christian theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he's held that position since 2003. He's the author of Historical Theology, an Introduction to Christian Doctrine, and he's currently the book review editor for Theological, Historical, and Philosophical Studies for the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. Well, today, Dr. Allison joins myself, Dave, and Brad to discuss why historical theology is important. And this conversation will kick off our first series for the podcast on the Apostles' Creed, where we'll be discussing the ancient confession of faith line by line, placing it within the context of the historical church, while also exploring ways in which the creed can sharpen contemporary Christian faith. But before we begin, I just wanted to start by thanking you for listening to the So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. Well, without further ado, let's get to our interview with Dr. Allison. Hello, Dr. Allison. This is Kyle Bashirs. Welcome to So What Podcast, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Kyle. I'm glad to be your guest today. Well, here with me is Dave Kakish. Hello, everyone. And Brad Mills. Hey. And so today, um, again, thank you very much for coming on the show. What we wanted to talk about was uh, historical theology. And um, if I'm not mistaken, you may be a bit of an expert in that field. Uh, Yes, uh, I am actually a systematic theologian, so I focus on what Christians are to believe, do, and be today in light of all that Scripture teaches on any topic, but I've also written a major book called Historical Theology, an Introduction to Christian Doctrine, which helps evangelicals understand how we've come to believe what we believe today. And this volume is a companion volume to the very famous book by Wayne Grudem called Systematic Theology, an Introduction to Biblical Doctrine. So whereas uh, Wayne Grudem traces what we believe today and explains what we believe in terms of Christian doctrine, uh, my book traces how we've come to believe these things that we hold to today. 
So let me, let me ask you this question. Why do you think uh, it's important to study historical theology? Let's first uh, define historical theology, and let's define it as the study of the interpretation of Scripture and the formulation of doctrine by the Church of the past. So we can view historical theology like accumulated wisdom of the ages. It's like if the three of us, uh, the four of us, had a conversation today, and, and we were discussing some topics, some doctrine, and so we accumulated our contemporary uh, wisdom as to what we should believe today. This is listening to the voices of the past and gaining insight from them in terms of how they went about interpreting the Bible and also how they formulated doctrine. Mm. And, and this is a great heritage or great legacy uh, that we uh, evangelicals possess. Mm. So it really it allows us to sort of peer through the curtain of time to get back to sort of uh, what the conversation was when it was happening. Exactly. So we're, we're listening to the conversations of the past uh, and learning from their wisdom. Hmm. Dr. Allison, this is Dave. I have a question for you. It's, it's more specifically concerning creeds and confessions. Uh, could you talk about what is the difference between a creed and a confession? Is one more binding than the other? So a, a creed would be a, a statement of what the universal church believes, that is, beliefs, doctrines that are binding on all who call themselves Christians. So we have examples of uh, creeds in the early church, such as the Nicene Creed, the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, and, and these are, in terms of human formulations of, of doctrine, these are the most weighty and the most authoritative. Uh, confessions of faith would be more church-oriented, denominationally-oriented. They are statements of what a particular denomination, uh, like Presbyterians or Baptists, what, what particular denominations believe about uh, all the doctrines of the Christian faith. And, and they would be binding, they would be authoritative for those particular uh, churches in that denomination, but they wouldn't necessarily be binding on all Christians everywhere. I see. Yeah, Dr. Allison, this is Brad. Um, sort of piggybacking on your, your last answer um, with creeds and confessions, come, those which come down to us through history, uh, you know, in our current context, a lot of people seem to have a hesitation or they take sort of a skeptical stance toward creeds and confessions. Uh, I guess, you know, the sort of the popular thing people say is there's no creed but Christ. And I wonder if, you know, taking the historical context into consideration, what's the danger in taking such a skeptical stance towards creeds or confessions? Well, even before the danger, there's a naivete in that uh, mm. we have no creed but Christ, or we have no creed but the Bible. Because all of us as Christians, as we open up the Bible to read it and study it, we already have a, a theology that forms, that, that really frames our interpretation and influences it and forms us as Christians. To, so to say we have no creed but Christ or no creed but the Bible really is naive, because mm. we all have certain beliefs about God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and human beings created in the divine image and, and our fallenness into sin 
and salvation through Christ and the Church and all these things, we already have a, a theology of that which can be um, more uh, more robustly formulated or underdeveloped, but we, we all have a theology that influences us. And so the purpose of creeds and confessions is, is to bring good theology and make it conscious to our minds so that we can realize what we do believe. So so, so there's a, there's a naivete, and, and the danger is we fall into this individualism where it's just Christ and me or the Bible in me, and, and then we neglect the help, the legacy, this heritage that we have, this wisdom accumulated from the past that can help us to be more robustly biblical and more robustly Christian. I've heard a joke. Oh, that's really helpful. I've heard a joke that the problem with soul competency is there are some souls that are more competent than others. Exactly. Yeah, and and and, and we see right the, the the rage of individualism today, where each person is interpreting the Bible and following Christ for himself or herself, and, and we see some really weird stuff out there. Yeah. And and uh, by not listening to others, particularly the wisdom accumulated from the past in historical theology. We, we are running the risk of, of going off the deep end ourselves, of believing untruths, of believing heresies, and influencing others to do so as well. You know, Dr. Allison, well, um, when, when you said that, I couldn't help but think back to uh, a lot of the new religious movements that came out of the Second Great Awakening. There was this big push against um, creeds and confessions and established churches, and the truth that you received came divinely uh, directly from the Spirit and, and from Scripture, and there was this wholesale abandonment sort of of Christian tradition, uh, and the result was many, many different types of isms coming out of that time, Adventism, Millerism, Millenarianism, uh, Mormonism. Uh, could you speak to that? I, I, is that something that, that you would say is a, is a danger in rejecting uh, creeds and confessions? Absolutely. So, uh, you had uh, leaders of, of these movements actually claiming that they were going to the Bible without any influence, w- without any other factors other than their uh, mind, seeking to find the truth about God and His ways in this world. Um, of course, they were not able to do that. Uh, and, and secondly, just because of this individualism, right? they formulated doctrines that were not in keeping with the uh, doctrines of the Church of the past, and, and they moved into what we now call heresy, where they departed from the truth of God's Word, they left sound theology, and, and they started these cults, these sects, these heretical groups. And, and one of the contributing factors was not paying attention to the creeds and confessions, this wisdom from the past. That's really good. Well, then, I guess, um, sort of to follow up on that, even even next— is, um, you know, if we're coming out of a sort of contemporary big tent evangelical context uh, that, that perhaps is just, you know, becoming familiar again with the tradition and with the creeds and confessions, um, how could we make a biblical case for uh, adopting creeds and confessions? And, I, and what I mean by that is, is there evidence in Scripture uh, to believe that God's people were using creedal statements or confessional sort of ideas uh, from the text of Scripture itself. Absolutely. Uh, let, let's turn in uh, to First Timothy chapter three. First Timothy chapter three, uh, 
uh, verses 14 to 16. Paul's writing to Timothy. He wants to come to him soon. He's writing these things so that, verse 15, if I delay, Paul writes, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And then in verse 16, he goes, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What, what is the mystery of godliness? Well, actually, it's not a what, but a who. He, Jesus hmm. Christ, the Son of God, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Most biblical scholars today believe that this little snippet at the end of verse 16 is actually a, a confession of faith that was recited regularly, maybe every week, uh, in the earliest churches, as they rehearsed uh, the life and career, the ministry, uh, the work of Jesus Christ. And, and so here we have on the pages of the New Testament an example of an early church confession of faith. Many right. biblical scholars also believe that that famous hymn about Christ in Philippians 2, 5 and following, many biblical scholars also believe that that was an early church confession of faith. So that as the early church uh, gathered together, uh, again, they would they would uh, confess that um, uh, Christ was in the form of God, but he did not account, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, et cetera, et cetera. So, so right on the pages of Scripture itself, we right. have examples of early confessions. Very cool. That's great. Uh, this is Dave again. How should creeds and confessions function in our lives on a day-to-day basis, and, and even corporately in a church? How can we use creeds so, and utilize them? Yes, that's, that's a great question. So we, we as uh, Protestants, as evangelicals even more specifically, we hold to the uh, ultimate authority of Scripture. So Scripture is God-breathed. It's wholly true in everything that it affirms. It is authoritative, it's sufficient, it's necessary, it's clear for us. And so Scripture, above and beyond everything else, is God's revelation to us. It holds ultimate authority. But I would say that these creeds and confessions um, have a like a secondary level of authority. Uh, they're, they're not inspired, right? They're, they're, they're not uh, necessarily truthful in everything that they affirm, but they do, again, give us wisdom from the past, that, is, that has passed the test of time and, and proven to be a sound expression of what the Church believes. So it, it, it kind of holds presumptive authority, a, a secondary level of authority. Totally. So as we think about what do we believe and do and be today, these creeds and confessions should keep us on the track. This is what the Church has historically believed, and, and we should stay within those tracks. That's helpful. Mm. Well, um, Dr. Allison, I'll, I'll go. I'll go again here with uh, with another question, and uh, this time I want to sort of tie it into your most recent uh, published work, um, your your book on Roman Catholic theology and practice. And uh, I know that you know if we go back to something like the Apostles' Creed, which we're uh, interested in here at, at So What, uh, I wonder if you know, something like the Apostles' Creed or even the Nicene Creed, those those early uh, ecumenical creeds, does it lay a foundation for uh, commonality? And and maybe even some would suggest, you know, ecumenical relationships between evangelicals and Roman Catholics. 
Could you speak to that? What, what, how does a, a creed that goes so far back into the past really unite Christians from various stripes, or does it at all? Uh, it absolutely does. And I, I um, really appreciate uh, your consideration of the church, your church uh, maybe reciting on a regular basis the Apostles' Creed or the Chalcedonian Creed or the Nicene Creed, uh, because it does help uh, our people learn what sound theology is. And, and there's a formation that goes on in their heart, in their mind, as they join with their other brothers and sisters saying, this is what we confess. This is our expression of who God is, who Christ is, who the Spirit is, what the Church is. And, 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 and it's an expression that is in accordance with, with the biblical truth. So it helps form us. And it also connects us with uh, the Church of the past. The, the, these creeds that, that we just mentioned were formulated b- before there was a, a Roman Catholic Church and an Eastern Orthodox Church and a, and a Protestant Church and all the different kinds of Protestant churches. So, so this is kind of the trunk of Christendom and, and the sound doctrine that characterizes all who, who claim to the name of Christ and, and are a part of Christianity, Christendom. And, and so there, there is a great link. We, we do believe with Catholics and, and Eastern Orthodox that, that God, you know, is, is God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth and, and right. everything in it. And, and Christ is his son and all that. So, so these are expressions of commonalities on these very significant doctrinal issues between Catholics, Orthodoxy and, and, uh, and Protestants. Dr. Alston, cool. do, do you mean to tell me that the church didn't start at the Reformation? Uh, right. <laughs> the church, uh, I think, was started by Jesus by formulating, by forming his disciples and the descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Someone, in my humble opinion. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and, but, but as we also make these confessions, right, that they, they, as we would recite the Apostles' Creed, we are, we are locking in on the commonalities that exist between all uh, who call themselves Christians. Uh, at the same time, those those creeds uh, don't uh, address differences, the, the the matters that now separate us. Um, I, I, for example, on on how God's grace uh, rescues us from sin through faith and faith alone, and right. and uh, the sole authority of Scripture rather than Scripture and tradition. So these these early creeds, right, don't um, don't have anything about the differences between Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestant churches. So we have to keep that in mind. Yes, we are expressing our commonalities, but uh, we're not yet uh, getting to our differences. And with those differences, uh, Dr. Allison, what are some of the most important creeds and confessions, then, in your opinion? Uh, Are all equal, or do you think that there are some that should be held in higher esteem and others maybe in lower esteem? Well, I would hold personally uh, to uh, at least the first six, um, early church creeds uh, as expressions about the triune God and about uh, the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, so I think those, because they are what we would call ecumenical uh, or consensus creeds that, that are held by everybody or almost everybody, uh, those should receive the greatest weight. And then our particular confessions of faith per our denomination would be after that. So um, so Presbyterians would hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, 
and and they're they're bound to uh, to that confession of faith. Uh, as a Southern Baptist, I am bound by the Baptist faith and message. That that to me comes second after these early church creeds. And for those that are listening, uh, if you may be interested in reading these creeds, we'll have copies or links at least to these creeds uh, on sowhatpodcast.com. So if you're listening to the show and you'd like to read the ones that Dr. Allison is bringing up, we'll make those available to you. So let me let me shift gears uh, for a second and and ask this question. Uh, When engaging with unbelievers, are creeds helpful and uh, could they be harmful in some situations? Uh, yes, they 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 definitely are are, um, are are helpful for us because let's say we're engaged with uh, an unbeliever who has some strange ideas, um, you know, about God. Uh, who is let's just give a real practical example: uh, an unbeliever schooled in in uh, science who is affirming Darwinian evolution and, and saying that Christians are out of their mind for not believing this stuff. And and how does the creed help us? Well, the very first article of the creed. You know, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. Uh, that 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 very first statement helps us to understand that the Church historically has confessed that God is the Creator. He's the Maker of things invisible and invisible. He's the Maker of heaven and earth. And 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 so, to in our conversation with an unbeliever who's a, is affirming evolution as the way that everything came about, we would say, you know, we we don't believe that as Christians. So, uh, so that, that helps us in engagement like that. Can there be dangers? Um, I suppose there's a danger in, in everything. Perhaps coming at, having discussions with an unbeliever about fine points of the creed or fine points of the confession of faith, which aren't at the core of the gospel, and we get sidetracked and, and the unbeliever gets sidetracked, and we end up going off on a tangent and not sticking to the most important thing with that non-believer, and that's the announcement of the good news of Christ. Mm, that's good. Yeah. I'm picking up on the harmful side of this, and this is Dave again, so of course I'm going to throw you a nasty, dirty curveball. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> but, you know, I've heard creeds expressed as a, a, a test of mere Christianity or even the litmus test of orthodoxy. I've heard creeds described as the guardrails on the highway of orthodoxy. But my question is, what if we can't affirm a particular line in a creed? And obviously, I know the Apostles' Creed is not on the same level as the Nicene or Chalcedonian Creed, but where the Apostles' Creed maybe says, he descended into hell. There's a point of contention, even throughout the history of the church, on what that means. Does that mean that if someone can't hold to every, even particularity, nuance, or fine point in a creed, does that mean they're outside the bounds of ancient Christianity? Uh, No, not necessarily. So... Um, I would, like you, I would not hold to the expression in the Apostles' Creed that Christ descended into hell in the sense of going there to preach the gospel and, and liberating all the souls from hell or, or whatever the belief might be. And, and, but I think I have warrant for not holding that. Um, first, there is no solid biblical foundation for holding that. And secondly, that, that line in the Apostles' Creed was, uh, actually introduced at a later date. It's not part of the original Apostles' Creed formulation. So I would say that I would hold to the uh, early expression, the, the historical um, uh, Apostles' Creed, but I would dissent from that line. So if we're having conversations with Christians that are saying, well, you know, I don't really believe this thing about the Creed, we would say, well, 
tell us why you don't believe that. And, and then we'd have to do an assessment. If the person is saying, you know, I don't really believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, though it's affirmed in the, in the creed, we would say now, okay, that, that's, a, that's a very, very significant point here that would put you outside of the bounds. So we have to have conversations on an individual basis on this matter. Can I follow up with that real yeah. quickly? Uh, so would you make yeah. a distinction then between error and heresy? For instance, I know that you're a proponent of the eternal generation of the sun, though you have very close friends and esteemed colleagues who don't lean that way. Though you might would say they're outside the bounds of ancient Christianity, you would not maybe say, and I'm leading the witness here, that they are believing heresy, but you might say they are in error there. Is that safe to say? I would say that, that's exactly how I would put it. So a colleague of mine who wouldn't affirm eternal generation, I would say, is an error. Why? Because there is a, a strong biblical case, I think, that can be made for the eternal generation of the Son. But I also understand why that, that the colleague of mine might take a different view, might, might interpret those passages differently or put them together differently. And I understand that, in, in my view, he would be an error, but he wouldn't be a heretic. Um, and uh, I don't believe that any early church creed actually emphasized the eternal generation of the Son. Am I right or wrong on that? Well, the Nicene Creed kind um, of hints at that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it hints at that. So it, it's moving in that direction. It's it developed, you know, later on. Uh, so I, I would say on that, yeah, uh, I would consider my colleague to be an heir, but not a heretic. And still within the bounds of Christendom, though deviating slightly yep. from the ancient Christian belief. Yes, and I would like to uh, converse with that colleague and say, you know, why wouldn't you hold to this? And what about these biblical passages? And have a good dialogue about it. Probably at the end of the day, we're not going to agree. But uh, And he would say, you know, he'd probably say that I'm an heir. I would say that he's an heir. But we're not, we're not heretics. We're not uh, proclaiming one another non-Christians uh, for holding wrong beliefs. That's helpful. Hey, Dr. Allison, so one of the objections I get uh, specifically about um, the, the Nicene Creed is that it was constructed— to sort of um, consolidate power for Roman officials, and that the Christian religion essentially looks completely different prior to the fourth century than it did afterwards. I know that's a that's a popular um, thought out there in the world. Uh, it comes to me quite a bit in conversation. Could you speak to uh, to that idea a little bit? Sure. So, uh, uh, fourth century, we have uh, in 325 AD, we have the development of, in the Council of Nicaea, we've got the Creed of Nicaea. And then 381, we have uh, the First Council of Constantinople, and we have the formulation of what's now called the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. So it's a, it's, it's a based in that early Creed of Nicaea and then developed with, uh, with some other points. So, so we've got this in the fourth century. Um, Yes, there was a political component of this. So in 325, uh, Constantine convenes the, the council because he understands that within the Roman Empire, uh, yeah, he's the emperor over the whole thing, there, there is a distinction between East and, and West and, and between those who hold the deity of the sun and those who are denying it, and, and he wants unity. So, so he convenes the council, yes, for a political reason, and yet, the deliberations that go on in the actual council itself are very theologically oriented. 
and 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 so you know there's um Honorius who is is uh, Constantine's theological consultant who is you know uh, affirming things like homoousios and that is the son is of the same nature as the father and 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 when we look at the creed we see that it is uh theologically warranted it is it's theologically driven so yeah we would say there's a political dimension but largely that the deliberations at the council itself were theologically in nature theological in nature same thing with the uh, 1 and 381 well, uh, Dr. Allison, I, I think we could we could call it there. Thank you very much for joining us today. That was wonderful. Yeah, what a pleasure. Great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. Uh, you can pick up a copy of uh, Dr. Allison's Historical Theology on most major book outlets, like at Amazon or Lifeway. Uh, if you'd like more information on historical theology and other works that Dr. Allison has done, we will have links on our website at sowetpodcast.com. Again, Dr. Allison, thank you very much. Great, thank you. The So What Podcast is a production of the People of Mars Hill in Mobile, Alabama. For more information, visit pomh.org.